나서 The theme I'd like to briefly address this morning before the session is continuity. Continuity. It's, of course, absolutely essential to the whole theme of a path. You don't have a path that's broken up into little chunks and having big empty spaces in between. So in our, the shamatha practice, the shamatha practice, while we arouse, focus, concentrate the attention during the in-breath and then relax during the out-breath, of course what is crucial in the midst of that, that undulation, that oscillation, is that ongoing flow, ongoing flow of knowing. So the question has been raised at least once, that how do I know whether I'm practicing right, whether I'm spacing out, whether I'm getting dull, and so forth. Um, And this will be an issue again as we move into the later shamatha practices. And the answer to that is quite simple. And that is, are you sustaining a very clear flow of cognizance, of knowing, of knowing? Like right now, I think, as far as I can tell, everybody's engaged. So there's an ongoing flow of knowing, uh, engaging with or attending to what I'm sharing with you right now. And as I've mentioned before, so I'll try to be very brief, but by and large in our day-to-day activities, our way of knowing the flow of cognizance is embedded within a conceptual framework, it's embedded in language, and so forth, which is fine, right? So that's, for the, ordin- that's the knowing of the ordinary mind, the psyche that is arising you know, in heavy dependence upon the brain activity. But what we're seeking to cultivate here as we move from coarse mind to subtle mind, that's the transition we're making, is that as we move from coarse mind to subtle mind, we're not losing the flow of cognizance, which is exactly what happens every time we fall deep asleep. Into deep, dreamless, non-lucid sleep, well, we don't know anything. We don't even know we're asleep. So we've slipped into a subtle continuum of consciousness, but it's been veiled by unknowing, so then all we get is a good night's rest out of it. What we're seeking to do here is to overcome that natural pattern, that effortless pattern, of slipping into unconsciousness, more or less unconsciousness, when we fall deep asleep, and sustaining a flow of knowing, clear, discerning, sharp, but not embedded within, or cognitively fused, uh, with conceptualization or language. So there's a flow of continuity. That's that third element, attending to the whole body one breathes in, attending to the whole body one breathes out. Theravada interpretation is the whole body of the breath, in and out, you're always on, it's full engagement. So there's one point. Second point, familiar to a number of you, as we engage in this this shamatha practice, but in general any, but here it's very explicit, we are, in a manner of speaking, seeking to put the body to bed as if it's going to fall asleep, as if the body is actually falling asleep, close facsimile. And likewise, on a subtler level, we're seeking to put the coarse mind to sleep, right? We're deactivating it. Releasing it, releasing it, releasing all the activities of the mind, remembering, imagining, desiring, hoping, fearing, all of these we normally do, we're putting it to bed, we're putting it to sleep. Right? And yet, what's the difference between this and just taking a nap? Of course, it's exactly that same point. Sustaining the flow of cognizance on a subtler level. Now, recall the, the statement by Atisha that I've cited many, many times, and that is um, that shamatha is the portal Achieving shamatha is the portal to developing, manifesting, realizing a range of existential perceptions, 
modes of remote viewing, precognition, knowing others' minds, knowing one's own past lives. So believe it or not, but this is widely accepted in all of Inter-Tibetan Buddhism, as well as in Hinduism and so forth. Uh, so, as you can tell, I take it very, very seriously. But again, uh, not simply as a religious belief. Number one, I, I'm fairly informed here, so I think my, my faith is not blind. Um, but this is something that just is inviting scientific research. Is it true or false? Good. As Eric Lander, I'm rambling a little bit, but in the, MIT, the Minor Life Conference we had in 2003 at MIT after the Buddhists had spoken, I spoke of shamatha, and George Dreyfus spoke of Buddhist psychology, Matthew Ricard spoke of stage generation, Amaro Bhikkhu spoke of Satipatthana, Eric Lander, the superb scientist at MIT, world expert in genetics, he listened with respect, with openness. What more could he ever hope for? You know, he was just really wonderful. And he gave in his concluding comments. He said, you know, I've listened to the Buddhists and what you've been saying, and it's really interesting. And I'm very, just, like, I'd like to know more. Can you show us? Ehi pasi. Come and see. He said, can you show us? And he said this in a very friendly, open way. It wasn't skeptical or anything like that except for in the good, healthy sense of skepticism. But can you show us? We, would, you know, we scientists deal with evidence. That's how we make a living. And can you show us? Do you have people who have achieved shamatha? Do you have people who have achieved, you know, let's say, dream yoga, who achieved great compassion, who have achieved state regeneration, who have profound insight into satipatthana? Can we really like to get together with them? Scientist to scientist, evident to evidence, rather than the scientists having this massive array, marvelous array, of empirical evidence and discoveries they've made over the centuries, and the Buddhists having a good talk. Of course, that's not true. The Buddhists don't just talk. But that's all we were doing. We were talking, and that's fair enough. It was a conference. You did not expect to show. It wasn't show and tell. Okay, Matthew, levitate. Read everybody's minds. We weren't asked to do that. But it's a, it's a perfect question. Of course, that's the whole rationale behind contemplative observatories. Let's come and show and tell. Show and tell. Let the scientists show, let the Buddha show. And let's give them some clarity here. Continuity. As we're attending to these fluctuations within the field of the body, the tactile sensations, we don't need any esoteric terminology here, just the tactile sensations corresponding to the breath. The tactile sensations themselves, of course, have no mass. They're not made out of atoms. They have no charge, no spin. They have no physical attributes whatsoever. And of course, you all know that people will have sensations in phantom limbs, which means they can have an amputation and still itch where they don't have an arm anymore. I mean, everybody knows that, right? But that's exactly where they're experiencing it. They're experiencing where the arm would have been if they still had an arm, and it's very frustrating trying to scratch in midair and not get, get rid of the itch, right? Which, which clearly indicates if we needed any further evidence, that these tactile sensations are not taking place in physical space. Any more than the visual appearances you're experiencing right now. The colors you see in this... I keep on looking out the window, this beautiful environment. The green, it's so green here. And the, like this soft blue of the sky. They're not out there. They're not out there in the, mo- in the molecules that make up the that make up the grass and the trees and so forth. They're not in the particles of air or whatever in the, in the sky. The colors are not out there. And there's and the brain doesn't, despite all the, you know, I'm being a little bit silly here, but the brain doesn't really light up. Everybody knows, right? When you take an MRI, the brain doesn't light up. It doesn't turn paisley. 
the images on the screen are, but you know, the brain doesn't, right? I'm pretty sure. So your brain doesn't, your visual cortex doesn't turn blue. That would be really wild and psychedelic if it did. <laughs> you know, blue and green and yellow and nee, 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 nee. Boy, my visual cortex is really lighting up like a Christmas tree. But it's dark in there. You know, there's no light in there. And so the green, the blue are not out there. Ask any physicist, neuroscientist who's worth their salt. Of course they're not. And no parts of the brain light up. They don't turn green or blue. And photons don't come in colors. It'd be so cool. That'd be also psychedelic, just seeing the little stream of BBs coming in, oh, blues coming in, and greens coming in. You know. That'd be very, very cool. Not true, but it'd be really psychedelic. Uh, yes, I did take LSD a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but then I think we finished the discussion. The blues and greens we hit, we, that we perceive, and we're seeing you know, in all the other colors and these forms and shapes, they're not out there. They do not exist independently of visual perception. They're not inside the brain. And many people believe they are, but there's just no evidence for that whatsoever. The, the correlates, the activities in the visual cortex, corresponding to the perception of color, of course they're there. Those are activations of neurons. But the colors that we see, the qualia, the appearances, they're not inside the brain. Two things being correlated doesn't mean they need to be located in the same place. That's simply obviously true. Straight logic. No, compel- no evidence, not let alone compelling. There's no evidence at all that images are inside the brain. Which means if they're not out there, not in between, and not inside the brain, they're not in physical space. And that goes for sounds, and smells, and tastes, and tactile sensations. None of these are physical, none of these exist in physical space. And it's those appearances that we're attending to when we're practicing mindfulness breathing, which are not in physical space. If they're not in physical space, where are they? And uh, the term that comes up a lot in the Mahamudra, in Dzogchen literature especially, is, well, they're present in the Datu in Sanskrit, the Datu, or the Ying, space of the mind, space of awareness. And that's as good as any. I mean, they're not in physical space. We certainly do see them in a, in a space. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing the colors within space. And so it's a space of awareness. And awareness itself is not physical. It, too, has no physical attributes. And so these two are coupled, awareness and the space of awareness. And the space of awareness that is that space, this multi-modular space of mental and then the five sensory spaces, a multi-modular space which is not physical, and, it's, and one is aware of it with an awareness that is not physical. And none of these exist. None of these appearances to any of the six sense domains or overall the space of awareness exist independently. They're not out there. They, they do not exist out there. They do not exist inside physical space and inside the head. So the point of continuity here, and I'd like to wrap up pretty quickly, is going to be segueing into our next shamatha practice, which we'll get to in good time, taking the mind as a path, but another, another term that's used by Dujum Lingba, a.k.a. Padmasambhava, is Nangrik Lamdu Kerwa, taking appearances and awareness as the path. That's a term for the same practice, taking appearances and awareness as the path. In that particular practice, you're taking specifically the appearances of, that are arising in the mental domains, thoughts, images, and so forth, 
one out of the six domains. You're taking those appearances as a path and your awareness of them as the path. That's your vehicle, that's your conveyor to take you from where you are right now, right down into the substrate consciousness. That's your car. Awareness, appearances and awareness. So continuity. Most of you, I think, are still, still spending here in, in the retreat, or probably still spending more time not in formal meditation than in formal meditation. That's quite understandable. Uh, if we divided the 24 hours into three periods, so eight for a good long night's sleep, and then eight for in-between sessions, eight would be a nice round sum for formal meditation. I wouldn't say I suggest it as a goal, but that would be kind of nice. A nice balance there for the wake, wake, during the waking state, that yin-yang, in and out, that even. Even time of formal meditation, even time of continuing to practice, but not in this form, formal, formal setting. So what I'd like to focus on now in concluding here is how do we mean continuity? Because that's the, that's the theme for the morning. The continuity for probably what is more, more hours per day right now than our formal sitting or supine position or practice. Continuity. Well, I'm introducing now a view. View, not simply a belief, but a, sh- a, a shift in the way of viewing reality. That's the big deal. Belief comes up and it's important. But what is central to Buddhism is not just how many beliefs do you have and did you, you know, all of that. They're not re- relevant, but that's not what gets the emphasis. It's view, meditation, and way of life, not belief system, meditation, and way of life. And view is, this is where the rubber hits the road, we say. This is where you live. How are you actually viewing yourself, other people, the environment, appearances? This is real. This is where you live, right? And so, here's my point. In between sessions, you're off the cushion. You're engaging with the world around you. Unlike in shamatha, you're not withdrawn from everything outside of your skin. You're coming out outside of your skin to the surrounding environment, other sentient beings, people, and so on. To bear in mind, this is now enriched mindfulness, bear in mind that all the appearance you're seeing, as you're walking, you're eating, you're standing, going about the activities of the day, all the appearances you're seeing, are all arising in the space of your awareness. It doesn't seem that way. I just saw a bird fly by. And it seems like the appearance was way over there. It's disappeared. Oh, there comes another one. Oh, there, there it goes. There it goes. There it, oh, now it's gone. Like the appearance is way over there. right? As if I'm seeing something that is over there, objectively out there. This morning, I just want to limit myself, the conversation, to just appearances. In other words, I'm not challenging ontology, how things exist, the ultimate nature of reality. Is there a world uh, external? Is there a phenomenon inherently existent? We're going we're gonna to get to that, but right, not right now. To, to not, right now I'm going to go for easier prey or low-hanging fruit, for which there's a lot of agreement among physicists, neuroscientists, and Buddhists, and that is the appearances aren't out there. The physicists will tell you that. The neuroscientists, even a really hardcore materialist like Antonio Damasio, says, look, colors are not traveling through space and smacking you in the eye like a paint gun. You know, they're not traveling through space. They're not out there and they're not getting to you. 
the photons, whether you like the photon theory, whether you like the electromagnetic field theory, either way, they don't have any color to them. And so no colors are coming to you, no colors are in there, they are arising in dependence upon the brain, in dependence upon consciousness. But the appearances seem to be out there. And what I would invite you to do now in between sessions is, if you understand this and you accept it, if you, and if you have disagreement, great, ask Glenn. <laughs> Go for it. Knock yourself out. I'm going to be betting on Glenn, by the way. If you want to debate with him, I'm going to be betting on Glenn. We have a little pool going two to one odds in Glenn's favor. <laughs> but the appearances aren't out there. But they seem to be out there. That's, we're, start, we're entering into the whole theme of the illusion-like nature of phenomena, which physicists are very, very keen on. This comes up a lot in physics, modern physics, not airy-fairy physics, hardcore physics, holographic universe, and so forth and so on. They're pretty serious about this, that what we're seeing here, whether you're looking through a telescope or just looking with your naked eye, things are not as they appear. They are not as they seem. And that's just a a common theme, common theme. It seems that the sun is moving around the earth. Well, it seems that way, but, you know. And so... Here we are to maintain throughout the course of the day an ongoing view, a way of viewing appearances, all appearances, of the, all of the five and six senses, the appearances of the mind, of course, as well. And seeing all of these appearances are rising in the space of your own awareness. They do not exist independently of your awareness of them. And in this way, they are dreamlike. They're not dreaming. We're not saying dreaming and waking state are the same. They're not. But they're dream-like, because when you're in the midst of a dream, all the appearances you see seem to be really out there. The people you see, the environment, and so forth, seem to be totally out there, independently of your mind. right? And then we react to them as such. We reify the grasp them onto us inherently existent. Whereas in the midst of a dream, all that you're experiencing consists of appearances to awareness, and have no existence whatsoever independent of your awareness. So what we're not saying, I just have to say this, even though it's obvious, of course what we're not saying is that people don't exist if you're not aware of them, or that the environment doesn't exist, that there's nothing out there when you're not looking. Not saying that. This is why I'm saying a psychological statement for right now. And what I'm challenging is something that's widely challenged in science. It's called naive realism. Naive realism. And that is things are exactly as they appear. There really are colors out there. There really are sounds out there and smells out there. And in which case, you know, our, our, our five sense doors are more like flypaper. They just pick up the flies that are out there, you know. Just pick up the colors that are already there and the sounds that are already there. I don't actually know anybody who believes that. But it, you know, it, but it comes naturally because the appearances seem to be out there. The food, this mood smells bad and that smells really good, and et cetera, et cetera. And of course it goes to a deeper level when we consider how other people appear to us. And what I'm referring here, of course, is not simply how they physically appear, but how they appear to us in terms of our experience of them. How do they seem? Does this person seem kindly, has integrity, honesty, good motivation? Or, contrary, well, we're dealing with appearances. Where are those appearances? when we evaluate, when we have a sense of who other people are and what kind of people they are, where are those appearances? Existing nowhere outside of our own minds. We didn't pluck them from them. 
We didn't pick them like, like a flower from their garden. All of these appearances that we have of other people, sensory but also mental, they have no existence apart from our own awareness. So that's it. To, to sum up, we're, we're venturing now into dream yoga. Venturing into dream yoga. And so when we're in meditative equipoise, that's the term yamchak, when we're meditative equipoise, practicing mindfulness of breathing, this is like falling asleep. We're on the trajectory of the five senses imploding into mental awareness and then slipping into simply a vacuity, a space where we may still experience just the rhythm of the breath. Just that. But really we've gone into retreat. So that would be like sleep. Lucid sleep. But then the session's over and we come out and then this is like a dream. That all these appearances that seem to be really out there, they're not. But it also emphasizes the space of your mind is not inside your head. That the space of your mind is as big as the sky. As big as appearances. If you look in the night sky, it's as big as where the stars are. And so attending to all of this. In between sessions, more like daytime dream yoga practice, which I'll talk about more later. And when you're in formal session, going into shamatha, then like learning how to fall deep asleep lucidly. So lucid dreaming, lucid dreamless sleep, parallel. Okay, sound like fun? Okay, let's go for it then. One silent session. So just a very brief comment to conclude. The uh, yin-yang symbol has been around for a long time for a good reason. And it's not just the complementarity, but it's a little dot of white in the black and a little dot of black in the white. Very, very useful. There are times when you're meditating and it's very, very quiet, right? 
So it's like dark. It's like, like a vacuum, like the substrate. But if you're doing the practice correctly, it needs to be instilled with the light of awareness, yeah, the dot. right? And then other times, a lot of appearances rise. And maybe your mind is really churning out a lot of stuff. So a lot of light, a lot of appearances. And what's needed, if you're practicing correctly, is the dot of stillness. We're going into meditation. It's like falling asleep lucidly and entering into lucid, dreamless sleep, into the dark, but with the light. And then we'll come out of our session, out of our formal session, we're engaging with this myriad of myriad world of appearances. And in the midst of all that, we sustain the stillness. Then we have real continuity of practice. Right? And if you continue this right as you're falling asleep, then you can start to increase the bandwidth of your practice. Right? And not stop practicing when you fall asleep. That's that. Enjoy your day. <laughs>